Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Do you believe in magic? From Harry Houdini to David Copperfield to Penn and Teller, great performers leave us wondering, how do they do that? Could it really be magic? Well, the answer may be right here in town at the Atlanta Magic Theater, home to magician Peter Morrison. City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with Morrison after seeing his show, and we'll reveal their conversation later this hour. First, encountering a homeless person on the streets can be so sad that many of us may lower our eyes or look away. Photographer Randy Bacon wants us to see the humanity of homeless individuals and hear their stories. The Road I Call Home is an exhibition of photography by Randy Bacon on view now at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. The artist joins us now via Zoom with the museum curator, Madeline Beck. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you so much for having us. So happy to be here. Randy, how did you get into portrait and documentary photography? Uh, It's been a long journey, but uh, it started way, way back when I was actually a teenager and fell in love with the camera. And uh, something happened that I really didn't expect. And that is I also fell in love with people in a way I never had before. And, and so my fascination with photography as an art form switched from maybe typical things like sunrise, sunsets, mountains, oceans, that type of thing, and went to what I feel like is the most magnificent creation of all. And that's uh, every single person that walks this earth. And that extends all the way to those that don't just happen to have the four walls, the homeless. What led you to document homeless people in particular? Through my journey, I've photographed so many different walks of life. And as mentioned, I'm fascinated by humans in general. But particularly with the homeless, it came through the back door, so to speak, and that I did not expect it. It was born really out of some of my negative judgments. I have to admit, I I was not that loving and caring towards homeless once upon a time. But uh, what I uh, found out through a a pretty long journey, and that is literally at my uh, photography studio and art gallery, uh, I would occasionally have a, a homeless individual come in. And my inclination at the beginning was to ask the person to leave, which was, you know, really not right. But uh, a couple things happened. A couple people came in, and I decided to just talk with them a while. And through those simple conversations, I got past the cover of the book, the cover of the book being the conceptions we have towards the homeless. And what I discovered is this is a very interesting, wonderful person. That, to me, then started the journey of opening the door more and more to homeless individuals. It got to a point where 
there was a homeless organization in my local area, Springfield, Missouri. They had seen some of the portrait work I have done of the homeless, and they, they asked if we could do a project. The concept for the project was to get very intimate, very personal portraits that's pretty much head and shoulders in the studio, nothing on the stereotypical uh, side that we typically see, which would be a person on the street. And so we started out with the idea, let's maybe uh, photograph four or five, maybe six. Let's get their stories and we'll call it a day. That happened. And definitely something happened that day I did not expect. And that is those four or five or six that came in did something. They left the studio. They went back to the street and they told all their friends about how special the experience was being photographed and sharing their story. I think they left with more dignity and they left feeling like they actually matter. Well, when that happened from that point on, I had pretty much a continuous flow of homeless that would come in and, and ask, it's like, can I share my story? Will you be open to taking my picture? That has been going on for years. And, and now in total, I have probably photographed around 200 and the exhibit is massive, but uh, it, it, it is uh, something I, I never get tired of working on. And I can literally say to this day, some of my most favorite people are homeless. And why is that? Well, number one, they're interesting. They do have stories that are raw and real. And I find that, you know, from getting to know so many, that the relationship is very much down to the fundamental. And that is, here I am, here you are, and let's connect at that level. A lot of the things we get engrossed in in this world that, that actually don't mean really too much for them, that's not even on their radar currently. They just want to connect with somebody and get to know them. And I want to get to know them. And, you know, we laugh and we share love and, and it's, it's special. Madeline, I would think this would have been an enormous effort for you to curate. Can you explain how the different components come together at the Marietta Cobb Museum for this show? Basically, I found Randy's work through his nonprofit organization called Seven Billion Ones. And a lady that he works with named Amy reached out to us. And upon seeing the photographs, we were, me and my director, Sally McCauley, we were immediately just engrossed and fascinated. And we knew we had to have the exhibition. So that's kind of the inception moment where, you know, we just fell in love with not only Randy's photography, but also his mission and his approach to this. It wasn't just about capturing an interesting photograph. The fact that there are these stories that accompany each piece that really bring out the personality and the humanity in each of these people. We were so moved by that. So Randy worked with us to get the exhibition to Marietta and he facilitated so much of the you know, transportation and all of that more logistic side of things. So that was incredible. And then installing the exhibition, we received the same selection of photographs that the Norfolk Art Museum received. And so it was wonderful to share that same set of photographs with another region, considering that was in Nebraska, and then it came over to Southeast and in Metro Atlanta. And then we added a video component, which was really special and really um, added that many more voices to the conversation and did that much more connecting of Randy's subjects with our guests. And so installing the exhibition was, I would say, easy in some ways because of how just beautifully cohesive, just from a formal standpoint, that Randy's photographs are. They are these rich, saturated black and whites for the most part, as well as these kind of muted photos that are in color, but everything is just has this rawness, but also this 
absolute ethereal beauty to it. And so it, it was easy to hang in that way, but emotionally it was, it connects you in a whole other way to these people when you are looking at their faces over and over and over and you're hanging that wall text and you're reading it and you're becoming so repetitively acquainted with these stories and these images. The staff was talking for, you know, weeks about how affected we were by this. So I would say from start to finish, it was just incredibly moving and on so many different levels and so many different ways that were unexpected to all members of staff from, you know, my executive director through interns that were helping and not a single person has looked at the show or assisted with the show that hasn't come to me and said just, wow, like this is so deep and emotional and it like it hurts of course in a way but they also feel so incredibly empowered almost and connected to these people and so I believe that makes you know it shows how successful Randy and his photography are yeah and it attests to the importance of sharing the stories of these people alongside their portraits. Randy, was that something you had in mind from the very beginning? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I absolutely love photography and I, I love people. And very important to that person is their story. So for photographing the homeless, I thought it was necessary and integral for individuals and people that view the work to connect uh, at a level that would not have happened otherwise. You know, hearing the description from Madeline about the exhibition, I had to smile because it's like, that's exactly the intent of what uh, I wanted to happen as a photographer and as an artist. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights is speaking with the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art curator Madeline Beck and photographer Randy Bacon about the new exhibit, The Road I Call Home. I'm intrigued with something Madeline was describing. Randy, would you talk about the style and, I guess, do you call it editing technique you use in the photograph? Some are in black and white, Others have some color and faded vignettes. My work, and I'm on a mission for this, and that is I'm trying as absolutely as, as much as possible to present authenticity. And so much in the world, especially with photography, it's, it's kind of the opposite direction of that. And I want to go the total other way and really present how can I photograph this person in a very simple way. Most of my work is, it's just simple. You know, there's, there's typically never a background. I, I love shooting against white and black and, and shades in between. And, you know, taking that approach and keeping it very much about how can I connect with this person so that they literally can look at me and say, hey, this is me, take it or leave it. Getting people to where they're very comfortable. There's a bond that is formed. There's trust. And pretty much every time I get done with a photo shoot, I feel like I made a new friend and I have a special connection. On the editing side, it's literally about how can I figure out how to give people that come and look at that person an experience. How can they look at that portrait and literally feel like even though it is a photograph that they're there standing right in front of that person and their soul and their heart and their mind, it all is being open and presented to the viewer. And to that point, it may surprise people to see that there's a lot of joy and warmth and happiness in these photos. Maybe not what a viewer would expect to see from 
someone experiencing homelessness. Did you give any sort of prompts to your subjects in order to show that side? Uh, yeah, Lois, I tell you, that's such an important message because we all go through something and we have these life challenges that can get us down. And so working, you know, with all the wonderful people I did on the road I call home, I tried as much as possible to keep it organic and let the flow just go. Whatever happens, happens. With that being said, we would converse back and forth. And literally, I may, I may say something to them as simple as, you know, when you hear the word love, really, what do you think? Or what does the word hope mean? And the responses that I got, not only from everything you're going to see in this exhibit, but pretty much throughout the entire catalog that I have of photographing around 200 homeless, is that they presented such love for a fellow man. They presented such belief in life. So even though the stories can be pretty hard to read, uh, some of them, there's always like these glimmers of wisdom. There's these glimmers of hope and there's these glimmers of, you know, life is precious. And I think that's really what I want people to walk away with so that, that as they push through their life and they face those challenges that maybe they can grab onto that attitude a little bit more. And then when they happen to see a homeless person, maybe as they're, you know, walking to work or going out to dinner or to a movie, whatever the case may be, they literally want to stop and, and get to know that person, realizing that there's a beautiful soul in the, the midst of that challenge that they're experiencing. Accompanying the photos in the exhibit is a 28-minute series of short films. How would you describe those films? Just like the portrait work, boy, it, it is what it is. Each of the participants on the video just let it out. And it, it's just very truthful. And I think that is a connecting point with all of my work. And, and that is people can sense truth in the blink of an eye. In just a split second, people can really sense, is this real? Is this truthful, authentic, or is it not? That's the way the videos are too. It's, it's just casual conversations. And again, maybe I would throw a simple prompt, but with that prompt, how it went from there was very beautiful. Were there some surprises? Is there anything in particular that stands out from when you started meeting the people you photographed and asking them about their lives? Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, there's so, so many. I was talking about that very first day uh, where we photographed, you know, it was a handful. And I didn't know who I was going to be photographing. Everybody that's in this project, except with maybe four or five total, the day they came in to be photographed was literally the day I met them. But on that very first day, I will never forget it. About uh, three or four in, uh, in walks a gentleman. His street name is Caveman. And his real name is Donis, which I did not know at the time. But what is uh, interesting about this, I remember so distinctly for years walking, you know, the, uh, the downtown area of Springfield, that's where my studio and gallery is, and walking the, the sidewalks and so forth. And whenever I would see Caveman, I would make a beeline for the other side of the street because uh, personally, I was like, oh, this is very intimidating. To me, he looks like he could be dangerous and on and on and on. All these, these conceptions. Well, in he walks the very first day. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, what did I get myself into? But uh, I said, well, I, I, I need to go up and get past you know, all these preconceptions I have. And I went up and introduced myself. And I'll never forget it. And that is he looked at me. He shook my hand. He said, I'm glad to be here and some various other things. But literally within 20 or 30 seconds, I actually felt like, man, I actually love this person. He is awesome. He's funny. He's endearing. He's very caring. 
And for me, that set the trend for the entire project. That very first day, early in photographing caveman, learning that his name is Donis, and now I made a new friend. You know, going through all of the different shoots I did, I had that same situation quite a few times. But then I would challenge myself to get past those conceptions, which were inaccurate, and, and meet that person on an eye-to-eye level, share some compassion, share some care, and the connection was incredible. When our conversation began, Madeline mentioned your nonprofit organization, 7 Billion Ones. Why did you create the foundation? What can you tell us about it? For many, many, many years before, you know, starting 7 Billion Ones, which we launched in uh, April of 2015, but many, many years before that, I uh, had the uh, incredible opportunity to, you know, travel to many, many states across the country, uh, you know, doing photography, capturing stories. And then I also had the opportunity to travel to, you know, maybe around 20 different countries. And through that process, I realized that, wow, we are perceived to be in this massive world with now approaching like 7.6 billion people. But when it all gets down to it, it really needs to go back to the ones that no matter if you live in Springfield, Missouri, or you live in Atlanta, Georgia, or, or you live in Uganda, or you live in Egypt, or you live in the Republic of Georgia, on and on and on, there's actually more alike about humanity than there is different. I discovered that, you know, as people, we all want to be loved. We want to love. We want to live a life of purpose. We want to have joy. The list kind of goes on and on. That, to me, sparked something in my heart that was basically gnawing at me, and that was saying, Randy, if you truly believe this, you need to step it up. And, and I kind of toyed with that for a few years, and then I, I decided, okay, it's going to require a lot of work. Uh, it's going to require a, a lot of time that I don't actually have extra time, but I'm like, it's that important. So I launched it and, and with uh, some really passionate hearts that believe in what we're doing. So it's not just me. And we've been doing it for six years now. And we've, I, I don't know how many stories we've captured, but it's a whole lot. And we share stories every single week, all walks of life, not just homeless, but pretty much every walk that there is. Do you hope that documenting the people you do and sharing their stories will lead to some sort of activism among the viewers and those who experience your work? You know, I, uh, I am a dreamer and I consider myself an optimist, but now doing this for really so long and I, I see the impact that people have on people. And, you know, I feel like I'm just kind of the conduit between the two, but I've seen what happens when uh, somebody looks at another person and they learn a little bit about that person that they don't feel as alone anymore. And so maybe, you know, your walk, maybe your walk in life is that you went to the doctor and, and you got the dreaded C word, you, you, you were diagnosed with cancer or, 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 you know, maybe uh, you lost your job or you're dealing with some type of addiction or uh, the list literally can go on and on and on. Those experiences become part of who you are. They become at least chapters to your story. Now, I fully believe that if that person keeps that story and kind of locks it away in the closet, it can never have the power that it was intended to have, and that is the ability to connect. And I, you know, 7 billion ones, it does, it requires a lot of time, but, you know, every, every night I, I lay my head down and I reflect upon this life that's mine. To me, I look at that and it's like, I am so honored to be on this journey and to hopefully 
you know, somehow kind of tip the scale every now and then where that world that is so seemingly big gets much smaller and we can see the beauty in the ones. Photographer Randy Bacon and curator Madeline Beck. The exhibition, The Road I Call Home, is on view now through December 19th. You can also meet Randy at his free artist talk and book signing on November 13th at the Marietta Cobb Museum of Art. More information will be on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, we'll dive into a world of illusion and wonder with magician Peter Morrison. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. Do you believe in magic? From Harry Houdini to David Copperfield to Penn and Teller, great performers have had us asking, how is that possible? Could it be magic? Well, the answer may be right here in town at the Atlanta Magic Theater, home to magician Peter Morrison. Recently, after seeing his show, City Light senior producer Kim Drobes caught up with Morrison, and they began their conversation by discussing how one becomes a professional magician. Well, you know, we're just born magic. That's how it works. (laughs) (laughs) I like that answer. I wish it were so simple. You know, I always make the analogy So someone decides to start playing the guitar and some people play the guitar and they play it once a week. And then there's others that play the guitar and they take lessons and then they play like, you know, five hours a day. (laughs) So magic is is very similar to any other performing art um, that takes technical skill. You know, I started at a very young age. I was doing shows when I was 10, 11 12 years old. And then I did take a very long break. I um, stopped doing it for probably about, gosh, close to 15 years. And then I met my wife and she worked at a church and um, said, oh, didn't you used to, you know, do this magic thing? Wouldn't it be fun for you to perform for these um, kids at this youth group? And I said, you know, that'd be great. So I brought a couple of things in and it just was like a magic wand hit me. And I said, wow, yeah, I really love doing this. And that's what kind of re-sparked it. And from there, did you have a regular full-time job that you abandoned for magic? Or did you just start tiptoeing I, back I, in? I, I like how you said that. <laughs> I did. I, I was actually a uh, corporate sales manager. So I worked for automatic data processing, was a you know district manager of sales. But I went in pretty big time. I mean, I was literally, you know, waking up extra early in the morning so I could practice before I went to work. Uh, And then with being in sales, I literally became known as kind of like the magic guy. So I would go around performing for all my clients. I perform in the office. It was, and then I'd get off work and I'd rush home and I'd practice till midnight. I literally became completely immersed in rehearsing practice and performance. And that went on for, I'm going to guess it was probably about three or four years before I made a decision to literally just quit and uh, with no big prospects on the horizon, mind you. 
What was that like? Well, I have a friend of mine um, who had been on The Tonight Show multiple times. And, you know, he said to me, he goes, look, I understand that you think that you'll make this smooth transition. You know, you'll eventually feel that you're busy enough to make it a career. He goes, but if you don't just do it, if you don't just go for it 100%, it will never happen. And I think that was sound advice. And I'd also say that, you know, it's got to be a absolute passion to make that kind of a choice because you're never going to want to put in the hard work. It is not an easy field. Uh, anything in performing arts is not easy, as you, you probably can relate. And um, I just decided to do it. And I'm so glad I did it. And it took years to get back to that level of income. And then I've exceeded that now. So, but it took years. It was not a, you know, one year, two year, three, it was a, a decade, you know? <laughs> right. Right. Did you apprentice under anyone or are you completely self-taught? Um, mostly self-taught. However, in the magic community, there are, you know, associations like the Society of American Magicians, the International Brotherhood of Magicians, which was started by uh, Harry Houdini. There are uh, seminars, workshops, uh, and I did them all. I mean, I was very, very involved, particularly during that decade of just kind of establishing my skill my and, you know, looking for feedback and all that stuff. Wow. Well, it's paid off. You are incredible at what you do, and you're a great performer. You have a very natural way of connecting with your audience and making people feel at ease. And one of the things that I really enjoyed learning about your show when I went was you have a moment, uh, let's call it pre-show, where you do some very up-close tricks with people as they start to arrive at the theater. Is there a different momentum that you have to take when you start performing for people when they are, you know, within a hand's distance of you? Yeah, so it's a great question. I, um, the reason I have a pre-show, there's, there's several reasons. When people come up, you know, it's very, very conversational during that opening when I'm meeting people and performing the close-up magic at the table. It also is really one of my strengths. So two things, you know, being able to connect with people, but also being very, very good at um, sleight of hand magic. And so people see this and they go, wow, okay, you know, so I already like him. And oh my gosh, I cannot believe that he just did something inches away from me. So you set a tone where really now you already have won them over before you begin your perf main performance. And, and now, I mean, now there's 10, 15 feet between me and the audience. And so it's technically easier in many ways, but beyond anything else, it is a performance. And um, you could have all the coolest tricks in the world, but you really need to be able to have great storytelling and make it interesting and, you know, engage the audience where they feel like they're part of a show versus just watching a show. Yeah. One of the hesitations that I hear from friends when they're like, I don't think I like magic. I think there's this inherent thing where people don't want to feel foolish. Correct. And a magician can make you feel like you don't know something that they know. Mm -hmm. I was so impressed. You told the story as though you had been the one that was fooled one day. Correct. And let me tell you about this other magician that I met in New York once and how he kind of pulled one over on me. And while you're doing so, you're actually performing this amazing trick. What a wonderful way to connect with people. I appreciate that. And you mentioned a really great point is that many people really think, and I understand why actually, that magician's job is to fool you and to make you look foolish. You know, look how smooth and slick I am while I pulled one over on you and aren't you a dummy for not seeing how I did it, right? That is absolutely not what I do. I, I always say when I meet, you know, I have a group of people say, you know, this is our circle of fun. So I'm here just to show you a talent. I'm here to have fun with you. I'll have stories like that, as you mentioned, where, you know, I'm not the only one. Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's a lot of uh, magic out there where it really is, ha ha, you know, look at me, look what I did to you. And I've never had that tactic. I just don't like it. I think it does make people, uh, it reinforces what you said. It just makes them feel like, oh, okay, see, this is why I don't like magic because I'm made to feel like an idiot. <laughs> You know, right, right. Which is just so, so far from what I'm trying to do. I'm just trying to have, I'm trying to unlock the inner child in people. That is exactly why I do what I do. 
That's really cool. Well, let's talk about some of the magic tricks that you perform. To start out, can miracles, you give a, a Miracles, ba- Kim. Miracles. <laughs> Sorry. Hallelujah. Miracles. <laughs> what is the difference between magic and illusions? So magic and illusion are really synonymous. Um, now, there are different categories of magic. So you have grand illusion. That would be like David Copperfield. You have close-up magic like I do in the pre-show. There's mentalism where you're guessing or, you know, in theory, you know, you're playing the part of someone who can actually read minds, right? So many people think, of course, illusion, we know the word, it's not real. Then they hear the word magic and they go, ooh, magic, you know, this is like real, you know, and it's like, no, if you actually looked up the definition of magic, it's the, an actor playing the role of performing things that are impossible, right? It's, it's an act, but think of illusion. I think more of like uh, the billiard balls in the show or something like that, where it's more mystical looking, you know, and captivating and just kind of a little more grand. That is one of the more old school parts of the performance definitely makes you feel like you could be in the twenties or thirties watching something. Can you describe the billiard balls? And also how long did it take you to learn how to do that? A very long time. (laughs) So back in the um, turn of the century, so like early 1900s, a magician's skill was kind of based off their ability to do what are called manipulative acts. So you're manipulating objects. Uh, It could be cards, it could be coins, or uh, billiard balls were one of the main mediums. It's something that you don't see done very often. And what I was doing is I tried to research and find something that fit my character. I mean, my whole character in my show and really in person is very classic. So, I mean, I, I don't run away from it. That's just kind of who I am naturally. I uh, tried to find a routine that would be based from that, like you said, the 20s, 30s genre. And there was an amazing magician by the name of Roy Benson, who was back in that era. And Roy Benson performed that routine that you saw on my show for decades. It was his closing to his performance. And then he gave that performance to a magician who, when he retired named Alan Wakeling. And Alan Wakeling wouldn't be a name that you would know off the offhand. However, you would absolutely know what he created, which was sawing a woman in half. Mm. So Alan Wakeling was one that took that to what's called a uh, thin sawing a woman in half, where they have a very, you know, box where she barely fits in it and he saws the woman in half. And it's probably one of the best versions ever done. It involves the audience being on stage while this is being done. It's incredible. So he was a real thinker in the world of magic. And so there was a book written about him where it showcased and talked about in detail, step-by-step how the routine was done. And so I saw that I got very excited because, you know, he was wearing the tuxedo. He had that same look as myself. I go, I bet this would be perfect. So then the challenge with any routine is uh, that's choreographed would be what music do you pick? So I listened to thousands of songs and I'm a musician as well. So I really like music and I go, you know, okay, this is the one. And it was that beautiful a piece from uh, Kyoko Matsui, who is a classic yet kind of new new age pianist. And it was just incredible. And, and I then choreographed the routine. And it took me probably six to eight years before I actually put it in my show working on it, you know, on a daily basis. Oh, my gosh, that is so long. It, what is a typical time to learn how to do a quote unquote miracle? thank thank you for listening kim (laughs) you're welcome um so i can learn things at a much faster pace now because i have the skill set that took all those years it'd be like a musician who's you know a professional and they have a new song you know they could probably get it down pretty well in a month or two but that would be working on it every day and then to really master it you know probably six months to a year to really make an incredible couple of years three four years so it really depends i mean on what the routine is, uh, if it requires technical skill that I don't have, uh, then it would take you know much longer. Magician Peter Morrison speaking with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes. We'll return with more of their conversation in just a moment. You're tuned to WABE Atlanta. This 
Miss City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrightsis. Thank you for being here. If you are just joining us, we've been listening to Atlanta Magic Theater's Peter Morrison discuss his craft with City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes. Here, Morrison explains how his magical life moved him from California to Georgia. So I'm a native Californian, was born in San Francisco. And the experience I had there was great because you have all of these tech companies and it's a great place to be a magician because there are very few magicians in the world and there's even fewer that are very talented. So you have, you know, I competed with maybe five guys in the Bay Area. We all became friends. However, I I started looking at the reality of my life, which was that I was going to constantly be unemployed until someone hires me. (laughs) And then I started thinking about if I really wanted to take my show to a new level, you know, wouldn't it be great to have some kind of a venue? And I started doing public shows where I would collaborate with either a restaurant or a small venue. And then I started promoting and selling, you know, tickets to these shows. And, And that was going relatively well in 2009 was able to meet a fellow who had a place in San Francisco that had a vacant building, basically. I mean, they connected, but it was a vacant space that was an old speakeasy. Oh, cool. And, you know, he said, uh, I have heard about you from my uncle. I've now seen your show because he happened to be working at this restaurant. And he goes, this is really cool. He goes, you know, I think you could do something with this place because it's really unique. Um, He said, it's very spooky. You know, because it was, you know, you, you go down this, this stairwell and it was really uh, mystical looking and had tin ceilings. I mean, just incredible. So I uh, decided to go for it. Now, timing wise, 2009, my bookings were off 65% because of the recession and I had no money and I'm like, okay, how am I going to open a theater? So I had this one credit card that had zero balance on it, but also had this incredibly low interest rate talked to my wife and I said, sweetie, I, I, this is it. This is my shot one time. And so I, uh, I maxed out the credit card, $38,000. And I had no money in my bank. I mean, it was just right on the verge of bankruptcy, honestly, and opened this place in San Francisco. And no one knew who I was in the world outside of a, you know some clients. And I spent the first year of that theater standing on Union Square, 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week promoting my show in person. And about a year into it, this guy came up. He said, you know, I've heard of your show. And I go, you have? Oh, I'm so glad. You know, was it from a friend? (laughs) And he goes, no, no, no. He goes, do you realize that you are like one of the top rated things to do in San Francisco on TripAdvisor? I go, I had no idea. I was there for six and a half years. And by the time I left, I was the number one rated thing to do in the city out of like 3000 things and had thousands of thousands of reviews online about the show. And it was just amazing to go from literally eking by where I made zero, I mean, no money to where it was like sold out every show, seven shows a week, you know, it was just amazing. What a wonderful success story. And then what brought you to Atlanta? I always give people the same answer and I'll give it to you. God brought us to Georgia. Seven shows a week's a lot. I mean, it really yeah. is taxing. And also, more importantly, my wife's from the South. And um, there's a there's kind of a general flavor of entitlement in the Bay Area. You know, everyone's a millionaire, basically. And um, I just said, you know, maybe there's a better place to raise my family. And what have I not done here? And I go, you know what? I should do a heartfelt prayer about this. I got on my hands and knees, said, God, if it's meant for me to leave, show me a sign. And the very same day that I prayed that prayer, a guy from Georgia came to my show and said, how would you like to bring your show to Georgia? And what was his inspiration to ask? He had a theater in Georgia and and thought it would be great. And a week later, I was in Georgia looking at the theater. It wasn't uh, necessarily the end all as far as like where I thought I'd be forever, but it was a great launching point for us to get here. You know, I built the brand starting there and then um, now have my new situation with the uh, Embassy Suites. Well, let's talk about that setup a little bit. It's a very intimate room. Did you do the build out yourself? I've always done things the old fashioned way. I, I've learned how to do them myself because, <laughs> um, you know, you can spend a lot of money or you can learn how to do it yourself. I um, 
obviously designed the theater in San Francisco, which was really intricate. And so I learned all about, you know, sound and lighting. And so what we did in the embassy suites was build a structure within a, within the room. So it, it frames the room, create a, you know, kind of a traditional black box theater. However, we, of course, we have the, you know, really lovely red curtains and things on the stage. And there is music incorporated into the show. This is, this is just a weird techie girl question, but is all of your music on one track and your entire show is lined up to it? Or are you cueing different musical yeah, spots? So here, here's the cool part. <laughs> a friend of mine who is a genius who does like creative work for David Copperfield and people like this, he came up with a system years ago where you have a magnetic ankle switch that triggers your music. So you have you know one song, but within that song, you can have it trigger multiple devices of any kind. But in this case, I use it to trigger uh, the lighting scenes that I've created. And it allows me to have multiple triggers within a track. So you can have you know, the lighting change or fade or spotlight or whatever you want throughout that song. So in the static scenes where I'm just talking, they'll stay one color. However, with things like the billiard balls, there's you know, a variety of different steps there where it will transition from scene to scene. Um, and it, people always look around like, oh my gosh, your, your lighting technician is so good. You know, <laughs> it's been automated and it's been automated really for a reason too, is that if you did have a technician who really knows your show and they call in sick, what do you do? I, you know, and right. so it allows you to have very good production consistently. Very impressive setup. Can we speak a little bit about the magic castle in California and your experiences there? Well, the Magic Castle is the center of the magical arts. So on a global level, they represent the magical arts. Matter of fact, the name of it really is the Academy of the Magical Arts. That's the name of the Magic Castle. The Magic Castle itself is a historic landmark in Hollywood, and it was built turn of the century, private residence, uh, changed hands several times. And then there was a attorney who worked across the way, who was a lover of magic. And he saw this building become vacant and he goes, Oh my gosh, you know, wouldn't that be something to, you know, maybe make this into this like magic club. And so during the sixties, it became uh, the hub of like a magic think tank where all these incredible magicians of that era would get together. And then they created a, you know, a clubhouse and they had a bar and it, has just evolved over the years to where now it's kind of like the who's who of Hollywood are members of the Magic Castle and performing there's just a treat. So you have to know the secret password and then a magic wall opens as you enter. And so it's really neat. The whole experience, it, it's just every bit of it's really well done. Right. Can you tell us about a couple of the other miracles that are performed when people come to your show here in Atlanta? Sure, sure. And by the way, I don't take myself that seriously. And the miracle statement was more of a pun. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, I just try to stay from the word tr away from the word trick. I don't want to spoil the show by giving people the material, but I would say it's a nice combination of classic magic, which would be the sleight of hand things. There's history in the show. There's storytelling in the show. And then there's a pretty significant uh, section of the show, which is focused on some very original uh, mentalism where, you know, I'm predicting things or guessing information. So I try to have a really broad range. And so when I'm constructing the show, I try to have something that's going to touch everyone, hopefully throughout the performance in their own unique way. There's a few times that I feel like you were setting yourself up for perceived failure. And oh, sure. I wasn't exactly sure why. Oh, sure. So this is a um, classic theme in magic where it's, it's, it's actually called that. It's called the magician's failure. So you have um, a moment of suspense, right? So the audience at this point, they think, okay, this guy, you know, he's a pro. He would never make a mistake. And then you intentionally make them think that you might have made a mistake. And they go, you know, now there's a suspense, right? Ooh, how's he going to get out of this? And, mm. and so emotionally, you take him to this place of, you know, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, I hope he can do it. And now when you succeed, it's just this euphoria. Oh my gosh, he got it. Yes. You know, now they're just, <laughs> yeah, there's just a couple of times in the show I'll do that. Um, I don't overdo it, but there are, there are magicians where that's a big theme in their show, but it's done in a very comedic way. 
and in my show, I only really only do it once, but um, that I that I'm aware of. Uh, oh, there are two places I, I remember, and um, that's very intentional. Again, it's also psychological misdirection, and so people stop thinking about how the trick's working, and they start thinking about, oh my gosh, I think he might have failed, and then all of a sudden you win, and they're like, oh my gosh, yes, you know, he he got it. So people get all fired right, up, right? Because we're on your side. Yep, yep. I think most people really are. Atlanta Magic Theater's Peter Morrison. The theater is located in the Centennial Park Embassy Suites and shows are every Friday and Saturday night. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., journalist Gail O'Neill and bookstore owner Bunny Hilliard share their favorite fall reads. Plus, the legendary Atlanta trio, the Subsonics, tell us what it's like to hear musicians worldwide produce covers of their classic songs. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at citylights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I'd love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE Atlanta's Choice for NPR. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate and thanks.